0: Chapter 8 Whippersnappers Incorporated The concept had to be turned into reality. It was done pragmatically and expeditiously. There was no inauguration ceremony, no fanfare to mark the birth of the new company. The company's first managing director began his tenure with only a desk and an unusable telephone. He had no staff, not so much as a secretary. Observers might have doubted if the new company, which did not even have a name then, was a serious concern. Events would prove these doubts to be unfounded. How GIC became a going concern is a story of initiative, resourcefulness, and sense of duty. On 9th March 1981, Dr. Goh released a press statement on the recent appointments he had made at the Monetary Authority of Singapore and at the proposed government investment company. The Rothschild Consultancy was also announced. One of the appointments was of Dr. Tay Kokpeng, previously of the World Bank as head of the Economics Department at MAS. Tay would eventually hold senior positions at both MAS and GIC including as president GIC Special Investments, the private equity arm of GIC. Dr. Goh also announced the appointment of Yong Pang Hao as managing director of the yet-to-be-named investment company. Yong was to be released on no-pay leave from OCBC, where he was vice chairman. Yong was multi-talented, a lawyer by training, but also an accomplished banker, administrator, and businessman. Malaysian-born, he had read law at Cambridge University and later attended Harvard Business School. He practiced law for many years at his father's law firm, Shuk Lin & Bok, in Malaysia, and was chairman of Malaysia-Singapore Airlines from 1964 to 1969. Yong's career in banking began in 1969, when, at the request of the Malaysian Central Bank, he was appointed Vice-Chairman of Malayan Banking to help in its reorganization. After a stint as Chairman and Managing Director of the Singapore International Merchant Bankers Limited and the Malaysian International Merchant Bankers Limited, Yong became Vice-Chairman of OCBC in 1976. Lee Kuan Yew later recalled that he and Dr. Goh had looked for someone who was first trustworthy and second careful, to helm GIC. Lee chose Yong because he knew him well, having been together with him at Cambridge University and had found him over the years to be someone of impeccable integrity. Still, when Dr. Goh approached him, Yong was startled, for the proposal had come out of the blue. He initially declined Dr. Goh as politely as he could, citing his lack of experience in investments as the reason. In addition, he was being groomed then to succeed Tan Chin Tuan as the chairman of OCBC Bank, one of the largest Singapore banks. So Yong was loath to leave the bank just then, he explained to Dr. Go. Later that day, Yong wrote a note to his chairman Tan, explaining that he had met Dr. Go and had turned down the offer. But that was not to be the end of the matter. The next evening, Tan walked into Yong's office to inform Yong that he had lunched with Dr. Goh that day and had had discussions with the other directors. The upshot of these meetings was that OCBC was prepared to lend Yong to the government. So Yong dutifully set off to see Dr. Goh again the next day. Dr. Goh told him little more than that he was expected to set up the new unit and take it over the first hump. Yong accepted the challenge, taking a pay cut in the process. Yong's task for his new appointment was stark in its objective, daunting in its scope. He was to turn a concept into reality, to develop the intended company from scratch. This meant he had to incorporate it, devise an appropriate corporate structure, staff the company, and make it operational virtually all by himself. As he had no one, he could delegate the tasks to. Young began his first day at his new job at the MAS offices in the old SIA building on Robinson Road. The investment corporation he was to head did not as yet exist. Hence, it had no office of its own. Young was met by Herman Hochstadt, who could add little more than what Young knew. Hockstart showed Yong to a room formerly occupied by Dr. Goh. Dr. Goh had vacated it only recently to move to the Ministry of Education headquarters. The room was bare, save for a huge desk and an odd-looking contraption that turned out to be a telephone scrambler. Hockstart explained that the phone was connected directly to the Prime Minister's office and had been used by Dr. Goh to call Lee. A key that nobody seemed able to locate was needed to activate the phone. There was no chair. So Yong had to sit at his desk and lean over with a pencil to write his memorandums, before walking a few floors down to the pool of typists to get them typed out. Subsequently, Yong found a chair in an unused room and dragged it to his office. As if this was not enough of an inauspicious start, Yong's ego was to take a further battering when Dr. Go introduced him to Lim Kim Sun. Lim had just been appointed Managing Director of MAS a few days earlier, on 1st March, and had his office on the same floor as Yong's. It was a terrible introduction, Yong recalled. Lim had brusquely asked Dr. Go why he had brought in this young whippersnapper who would only be interested in empire building. Yong was mortified, and doubly so when he found out, upon checking the dictionary later, what whippersnapper meant. Whippersnapper. Noun. An unimportant but offensively presumptuous person, especially a young one. To Yong's credit, he didn't let all this get to him. Soon he would impress Lim with his businesslike ways and lapidary submissions. Yong knew that the relationship had turned when one morning Lim offered to blunder or treat him to lunch. Later, Lim would support the idea of Yong taking over from him as managing director of MAS. And when Lee sought Lim's opinion about Yong's suitability to be a high court judge and later chief justice, Lim seconded the proposals, remarking that it would be a case of fish returning to water. But all that was in the future. In his first months at the company that had as yet no name, Yong had to forage for staff. He asked Hockstad for advice, and Hockstad pointed him in the direction of Tan Tek Chui, then chairman of the Public Services Commission. The PSC was in charge of awarding government scholarships to deserving students and posting them to various government departments upon their graduation. Yong called on Tan, who told him that the PSC was short of scholars. Indeed, at the request of Dr. Go, it had only recently sent some of its best officers to MAS. Nevertheless, Tan did manage to secure one fresh graduate for Yong. Yong also inquired about getting a secretary for himself. Strangely, he was told that the government had no provision for a secretary for his position. Yong eventually brought over his secretary at OCBC. Together, they then cleaned up the room, bought some furniture, arranged for a telephone, typewriters, shredding machine, copying machine, and so on, and we got started. In recruiting staff, Yong sought fresh graduates with outstanding academic records from the best universities. He did not mind their inexperience in fund management, but felt they would be an investment for the long term. Young also invited serving MAS officers to apply. One of the first of these to be selected was RJ Seigel, whose initial portfolio was Japanese equities. Seigel would rise through the ranks to become GIC's Director of the Equities Department and subsequently Director of Investment Policy and Strategy. Yong also posted advertisements in the local and foreign press and succeeded in attracting a handful of capable young people willing to chance what was then stole the relatively unknown field of investment management there was another fundamental issue that had to be resolved urgently the form the proposed company should take dr. Go had asked Yong to consider the matter and make recommendations Yong's knowledge of the law and his banking experience came in handy here. He suggested that the new entity be incorporated as a private limited company, wholly owned by the government, and which would manage, but not own, the foreign reserves under its charge. Yong's reasoning for this arrangement was that it would leave the investment company free of various complications arising from the ownership of foreign assets, especially with regard to taxation. The country's assets, also, would be better protected that way, as it would still be owned by the government. As Yong put it, structuring the new company as a management company was the simplest arrangement. It turned out to be the correct arrangement. Had GIC owned its assets, we would have been caught in all sorts of difficulties. Dr. Goh asked about the legal structure that would provide for the government's ownership of a company. Yong said the solution lay in a legal concept known as Corporation Soul. Corporation Soul allowed for the creation of a legal entity of a public office, which would be independent of the individual occupying that office. Thus, the office of the Minister of Finance, for example, could be the Minister for Finance Incorporated, which would be the owner of the investment company. This entity would retain its legal power regardless of who the Minister of Finance was. Lee and Dr. Go accepted Yong's recommendations. Yong also recommended that the new company begin with a small staff. The MAS had efficient administrative and corporate services divisions. The new company could piggyback on MAS for these services, including accounting, auditing, and personnel management, rather than develop them on its own. It could also continue to operate out of the MAS premises. Yong then set out to incorporate the company. He asked the Attorney General's chambers to draft the memorandum and articles for the new company. A draft was delivered to him the same day, and he realized that it was essentially the standard form for the incorporation of companies. Deciding, however, that it was good enough for his purposes, he submitted the completed documents to the registry of companies. In those days, before the civil service computerized its operations, it usually took about two weeks to incorporate a company. But the registry told Yong that it could issue the certificate of incorporation the next day. It asked for the name of the proposed company. The name of the company had been decided earlier, almost by default. Dr. Goh had always referred to the proposed company as the outfit or unit, while the press had called it the Government Investment Corporation. Civil servants had adopted the latter, but added the words Government of Singapore, as the term connoted respectability. After all, international credit agencies had given Singapore a A credit rating, citing its large reserves and the government's provident fiscal policies as the reasons. Taking advantage of that brand, it was decided, more or less tacitly, to call the new outfit the Government of Singapore Investment Corporation Private Limited. It was duly incorporated as such on 22nd May 1981. While external parties would and did use a variety of abbreviations for the company, one was GOSIC, the abbreviation used within the establishment from the beginning, and the version now accepted was GIC. GIC was established on the proposition that the country's reserves should be managed by an indigenous national entity, rather than by external fund managers. Lee and Dr. Goh would have it no other way. For them, leaving the management of the country's money to others. Meant a good chance that they would enrich themselves instead of the country. However, both Lee and Dr. Goh knew that there was limited local expertise in fund management and that, willy nilly, GIC would have to obtain a nucleus of experienced portfolio managers to jumpstart the new company. Yong recognized that GIC would not be able to find experienced professional managers in Singapore to satisfy its requirements and suggested to Dr. Goh that their search for talent be extended to London and New York. Dr. Goh agreed, and executive search firms were hired to identify suitable candidates overseas. Dr. Goh and Yong then flew to London to interview the shortlisted candidates. London, however, proved fruitless. The problem was not the quality of the candidates, but their generous superannuation plans. They had to give as much as six months' notice to their current employers to avoid forfeiting those benefits. Yong was unwilling to wait that long to get GIC started. The next stop was New York, to which Yong went alone. Unexpectedly informing Yong that he had to return to Singapore, Dr Goh asked him to do the New York interviews himself and have them taped. Yong was then to submit a summary of his recommendations and the taped interviews to Dr. Go. Yong did find American fund managers prepared to work overseas at short notice, in some cases within a week. Yong informed his interviewees that if they were shortlisted, they would be required to fly to Singapore to be interviewed by Lee himself. This was a sine qua non. Lee would personally interview all senior appointments to GIC. Lee had also asked that the wives accompany the candidates to Singapore, reasoning that the fund managers would not stay long in Singapore if their wives were unhappy with living conditions in the country. The upshot of Yong's New York expedition was the selection of three American fund managers. They were Douglas Salmond, Leo Bailey and Theodore Gerhardt. Each was a specialist in an investment field that the GIC board had wanted GIC to begin with. Salmond was from the College Retirement Equities Fund, which, with its sister company, the Teachers Insurance Annuities Fund Association, was one of the largest institutional fund management companies in the United States. He was an expert on Japanese equities. Bailey, also from the College Retirement Equities Fund, was an authority on US equities. And Gerhardt, from the Prudential Insurance Company of America, was a US real estate investment maven. All three would arrive in Singapore by the last quarter of 1981, by which time GIC had established three investment units Japanese equities, US equities, and real estate, the last focusing on US property markets. The three Americans, proved to be exceptional mentors, evidence indeed that Young was a good spotter of talent. They were thoroughbreds in their fields, technically competent with a deep knowledge of their industry and a wide network of contacts. And most importantly, they were committed to developing their respective teams. The rookies under their charge received grounding in the basics of investment, a sense of the rigour required to perform due diligence, And encouragement to form their own conclusions. The impact of each of the Americans varied. Bailey left after a year for a variety of reasons. Salmond stayed through his three year contract, impressing those who worked with him with his knowledge of the Japanese market and his stand that value investing was all about stock selection rather than index investing, which was nothing more than opting for mediocrity, he famously said. And Gerhardt worked for GIC until his retirement in 1989. He resisted investing in U.S. properties up to the mid-1980s, believing that the deluge of Japanese money in the U.S. real estate market had caused U.S. properties to be overvalued. The GIC pioneers who worked with Bailey, Salmond and Gerhardt, and who are now themselves leaders in their fields, recall their American mentors with gratitude. Among the accolades from them, the Americans were three extraordinary individuals, one said. True professionals, said another. People from whom we learnt a lot. GIC achieved a great deal in the first year of its existence, in a manner that would exemplify the GIC culture that was to emerge. Yong Pang Hao's unaffected but effective style of management would be the model for future GIC CEOs. That Lee Kuan Yew made it a point to interview all senior candidates signaled the attentiveness that would be given to the recruitment of high-caliber people. And the willingness to seek expertise worldwide and to learn from others would become second nature to the company.